Good afternoon, everyone. I want to begin in Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6. In Hebrews 11.6, it says, But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Something I'm sure that's highly important to all of us, that we would be pleasing to God. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is. Mr. Johnson in his FI Online Hebrews class will point out that this particular passage is just simply bringing out the point that He continually exists and that He is what He claims to be. The passage goes on, and, and it's implied here, and we also believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And Mr. Johnson again adds, this is a confidence that we have in God's moral character and that he will deliver what he has promised. The starting point for faith is belief. As we saw in the first half of verse 6, and you've probably had conversations throughout your tenure in the church where many a member has shared their first steps in their calling. They read or heard something, they believed it, and they stepped out in faith and put it into practice. I've never forgotten the lady we met some years ago who had learned about the Feast of Tabernacles and determined that she was going to keep the Feast of Tabernacles on her own with her children, set up a tent each year in her yard, and did that somewhere around a decade before she finally realized and came in contact with church and then began attending and finding out that there was a much larger group out there doing the same thing. So to begin the whole process, a person must believe what is written or what is spoken. And without that, there's not much forward movement. And we see the consequence of no forward movement with the world that we lived in, Mr. Jones was alluding to the fact that we have to preach our gospel differently to different groups, or at least speak to them on their terms. Sometimes when we look at the people that we interact with, Satan has deceived some to the point that they not only don't believe in God, they believe in no supernatural being, which makes it a lot easier for Satan to operate, and they certainly don't believe in any instructions. In fact, the societal value among many is to value the rebel. The no one tells me what to do. We're, with, we're witnessing a profound cultural shift in our nation. And I sometimes think about this as I interact with students and their families and other people. To simply believe the basics seems so far out of reach for some they not only resist any discussion about any of those basics, they're aggressively angry about the suggestion that they should believe in God and abide by His instructions. Satan has very effectively put a stumbling block in place so that the process doesn't even seem to have a chance to start. But we know that Satan has been given permission to blind this world. What a glorious gift it is for us here today and each Sabbath to be called by God 
and to engage in a process of faith building that began with belief. If belief is the starting point for faith, what would you say is the goal? What's the end product of faith? I'm sure in many respects, especially after hearing the first message, we could say the hope, the hope of salvation. That's certainly true. In Romans 8.24, we read, For we are saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? It's not tangible yet. Verse 25 of Romans 8, But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Doesn't this also describe the kind of faith that we were just reading about? And it nicely lines up with what we know about in Hebrews 11.1, a passage you know quite well. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, I'm asking you to consider what might be the end product, what might be one of the goals of faith. We've just read here in Romans 8 and referenced Hebrews 11, which refers to things and it. There's something out there. Mr. Jones spoke of that. But we also read in Hebrews 11:6 when we started that faith is also an assurance and a confidence in God and that he is the rewarder. So there's faith, faith towards these things that are out ahead of us and also towards God. So again, what might be a goal of faith? Is there something more? Let me come at it another way briefly. In my family, there's an unusual generational childhood concern with a few family members. The idea of eternal life scared them as children. It's interesting when you look at this, that it's not that uncommon through history. In fact, if you take a look at man's interests, whether it's philosophers, whether it's literature, whether it's movies of more recent, uh, many have had concerns with what immortality might look like. I'm ashamed to use Wikipedia as my source today for this quote, but I like that it was very concise and to the point. Uh, so let me read this from Wikipedia on immortality in fiction. For most of literary history, the dominant perspective has been the desire for immortality. Let me back up. For most of liter literary history, the dominant perspective has been that the desire for immortality is misguided, albeit strong. And among the posited drawbacks are ennui, not a word I was familiar with in all my studies. I've not run across that. My wife says, oh, yeah, ennui. Um, it is a feeling of listlessness dissatisfaction arising from a lack of occupation or excitement. Why didn't they say boredom? That's exactly what we're talking about. So one of the concerns about immortality is I'm, I'm going to be bored. And then they go on to say loneliness and social stagnation. So if you take someone who's got that position or like these family members that I referenced, I can tell some of them about eternal life. 
I could tell someone who's in this other group that God is a God of hope, the hope of salvation. But if immortality, if eternal life scares them and concerns them, that comment can fall a little flat. So what's missing from the equation for them? And what's an important contributing factor to calming their concerns about eternal life? I would suggest that the goal of faith and the thing that would calm is a close personal relationship with God. A close personal relationship with God. You know, we all default to mistrust of someone that we don't know. We're skeptical of and doubt their claims until we really start to build a close relationship with them and get to know them a little bit better. I know for me, when I was reading passages as a younger person, and I read, read about God as my champion, God goes before me, God is my shield and my buckler, I admired those, and I understood that the people who wrote them had experienced something where they connected with that title for God. But it didn't mean much to me. It was detached until I had my own opportunity to experience God as my champion. God going before me and clearing the way and making some very serious issues much better in their outcome. God is good, and perfectly so. Faith is an assurance or confidence in him that he is what he claims to be. And it is faith in the mind and character of God. But we all know that that grows and is substantial when there is a relationship with him. And when we build that relationship gradually over time. So what is the goal of faith? At least closer to the bullseye. I've, I've learned over time not to say this is the one or this is the thing. Uh, more time goes on, you realize how Scripture takes you deeper and deeper and deeper. And so I'll say closer to the bullseye relationship. If we've lived a life interacting with God and have come to know him, there is confidence that I can step into eternity in faith based upon his character. So in today's message, let's talk a little bit about faith, faithfulness, and relationship. If you want to give it a title, that would be the title that I would give. Faith, faithfulness, and relationship. Faith, we've already discussed a little bit. Some of its key components are an assurance and confidence, an absolute trust in the mind and character of God, His moral character, His word, and what He says is. But we know in practical terms, when we deal with one another, when we deal with uh, employers and uh, friends, faith is only as good as who or what we put our faith in. And we've had many examples in history and our own experiences that are misguided trust and faith placed in someone or their faulty ideas. You know, God took Israel to task, rightly so, for the, for, for the worship of false gods because they were putting their trust and their reliance on wood and on stone that could do nothing for them. We have examples through Jeremiah and Ezekiel about Judah putting their reliance on Egypt to save them from Babylon 
and he describes that reliance as a broken reed. So it's not trustworthy. Where do I place my trust? Where do I place my faith? What we're asking is who can we rely on, no matter the circumstances, especially when I'm in need? And what we're talking about is faithfulness. It's a very important aspect of faith. Faithfulness has two aspects to it. You know, these words that we use, they represent different concepts and sometimes not too precisely. Um, Mr. Jones illustrated that point in the earlier message. But one of the aspects of faithfulness is a passive aspect. Simply describe someone who is full of faith, faithful, or someone who is a believer. You've heard this used probably just to describe someone who attends regularly or considers themselves, themselves a Christian. They are one of the faithful. But there's also an active aspect, which points to reliable, consistent actions or behavior, loyalty, and fidelity. Loyalty and fidelity. Fidelity is an interesting word. I've used it in some of my classes. The, the Latin root for fidelity is just F-I-D. And you've probably heard of the name for a dog in the past, Fido. This links back to this. And if you study and are deciphering certain artworks and there's a dog in the painting, and we're talking about earlier pieces, Renaissance and a few hundred years before and after, if there's a dog in the picture, it's demonstrating that what you're witnessing is an individual who is one of fidelity, who demonstrates fidelity. When we consider successful relationships, we want that. We want faithfulness, we want fidelity, and it's very important to us. If we work for someone, we want the confidence, we want to have the confidence that our employer is going to pay us. When we put our money in a bank, and there have been historic issues with bank failures and money and investments lost, you know, banks will often use the term fidelity in the name of their bank to imply a reassurance to their investors. When we just skim through and go through God's instructions to us, he is very interested in our faithfulness. If you look at many of the principles, he's concerned that a pastor is faithful in his interaction with his congregation, that a marriage is a faithful situation, that our business dealings, no matter who they are with, are faithful, that a parent and child relationship, likewise, brethren to brethren and brethren to neighbors, you know, when faithfulness is present, there's no fear of harm or loss. And there are many scriptural references where God instructs us to respect the stranger and the foreigner, to respect your spouse, to respect another, one's, another person's spouse, to respect your children and conduct business with just scales, and treat each other as you want to be treated. Honor those who are older, who are parents, who are leaders. All of these things that we've just gone through all demonstrate faithfulness to him, to God. He wants to see those behaviors, and we demonstrate our faithfulness by practicing those. 
Some of you may have had the unfortunate circumstance of witnessing when unfaithfulness occurs, when there's infidelity. If we haven't seen that firsthand, we've certainly seen movies or TV shows or read books where it demonstrates the very strong emotion, outrage, and anger when there is unfaithfulness and infidelity. So, of course, God places a very high regard on faithfulness and fidelity. You know, we read about the individuals in Hebrews 11 as our best examples of faith. We don't just read about passive individuals who believed and were assured and only. It stops there. We read about people who acted on their faith, and they built a very close relationship with God in the process. As soon as we leave from verse 6 in chapter 11 of Hebrews, like we did when we started, and we launch into verse 7, we read about Noah and Abraham and Sarah. Then we jump ahead to verse 17, and we get details about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses. And we read a, a very reduced synopsis of what they did, what they lived, and what they acted on. They were faithful to God and were fully assured of his faithfulness to them. The Bible is a book that chronicles God's relationship with man now and into eternity and how he is faithful and what he values in faithfulness in each of us. Let's take a look, closer look at faithfulness, and let's start by looking at God's faithfulness. In poker terms, God is all in. Everything is in. A couple points. I'll, I'll mention a few scriptures just in passing. He loved us first. We know that from 1 John 4.19. We do not initiate the relationship with him. We know very famously from any football game, he gave his only begotten son, John 3.16, that who, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal, everlasting life. And he lets us know in John 15 and verse 13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down life for his friends. There was nothing greater that God had to give than to have his son sacrifice for us. Turn with me to 1 Peter 1. We're going to take a look at a couple of scriptures that again are showing how God is all in. He is perfectly faithful. And He has planned this for a very, very long time. First Peter 1 and verse 18 knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times to you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. 2 Timothy 8. 2 Timothy 8. 
Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. And I'll just reference one other one for you. Titus 1, in verses 1 and 2. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. He loved us first. He gave his only son. He laid down his life for us, and he has spent billions of years planning and preparing for what we have before us today. He calls us sons and daughters, children and heirs. He describes himself as our father and Christ our brother, family terms. In John 15, he calls us friends. He, do, he says he no longer calls us servants. Servant doesn't know what his master's doing, but I call you friends. For the things I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. He cannot lie. He cannot cheat us. He is righteous and perfect. He's a perfect judge. He's full of mercy. He's our provider, our defender, our healer, our champion, our shield, our refuge. There is no greater example of faithfulness. There is no greater relationship partner. God is all in. He is perfectly faithful. Now, how do we demonstrate faithfulness to Him? Turn with me to John 17. We get a hint here in John 17, and we get a special glimpse into the relationship between Jesus Christ and God the Father. And we're looking into a moment where He is praying to his father, and we're allowed, in a sense, to listen in. And you'll see in this passage that Christ is making a very clear statement about the value of faithfulness. It is an example, and it is a model to each of us. John 17, we'll begin in verse 1. <clears throat> Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you. Now the relationship comment there. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Verse 4, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Verse 4 is a very profound statement about faithfulness. Christ is saying, and, and many of the, the scholars who look into this particular passage, you know, he has not yet been crucified, but this statement is including the entire package, how he has lived his human life 
what he is about to do. And he can say with certainty to his father, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. He was perfectly faithful in his job. Now, Christ was more specific a couple chapters earlier. So if we can turn back to John 15. Remember, we're asking, what is it that we need to do to demonstrate faithfulness? John 15 and verse, starting in verse 9. It says, As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Excuse me. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments. Notice that statement he just made. He's asking us to keep the commandments just as he kept his father's commandments. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. For I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give you. You have to pardon me for a cough here for just a minute. been doing this to me all week and I was afraid it was going to creep in again. I want to point out <clears throat> everything about this passage is voiced in terms of relationship. Familial terms, love, friends, but it's conditional. Keep my commandments and do whatever I command and go and bear fruit. You know, we cannot claim a family relationship without obedience. Turn with me to Mark 7. Mark 7, and we'll start in verse 21. Mark, sorry, did I say Mark? Matthew. My apologies. Matthew 7. And we'll start in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, 
I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You know, 1 John 2 and verse 4 repeats this comment. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. I'd like to read from the pulpit commentary about verse 21. This comment, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So from the pulpit commentary, verse 21. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord. It is a title that professes obedience. Observe the indirect claim to this title of reverential submission and the implied expectation that it will be given him. In contrast, the obedient man says, Lord, Lord, but not merely says it. Such a man enters into a family relationship to Christ. And then they cite Matthew 12 and verse 50, which says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and mother. God, who is perfectly faithful, How do we demonstrate our faithfulness? It is by yielding, submitting, and obeying Him. We are faithful if we are faithful. We are family if we're faithful. We maintain and build a relationship with God if we are faithful. This is our battle. This is what we struggle through to endure to the end. And this is where we struggle. Our adversary not only sells the lie to much of the world that obedience is unnecessary, he wages war to wear down the saints. If you've been around long enough, you've watched people walk away, and you've heard comments like this, this whole business is a burden. It's too difficult. I simply want to do what I want to do. I don't want to yield. Life's not fair. Excuse me. The implication, God's not fair. I didn't get what I wanted. How can some of these terrible things happen? This is where the depth of our relationship with God is put to the test. Matthew 22. Let's turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22 is actually Christ's own words. And he is citing Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5. But in Matthew 22, starting in verse 34... But when the Pharisees had heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. (coughs) Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. 
this phrase, this comment that he made indicates something that's greater than any other relationship that we have. Something that's strong enough to compare with life's struggles and tragedies and to come out the other end from those events holding on to that relationship <clears throat> with God and with Christ. It's important for us to practice that and it's important for us to look ahead and to be refreshed by what's coming up in the holy days ahead of us. I was listening recently to Joel Meeker on his FI online Daniel and Revelation classes. And Mr. Meeker was stressing the importance that we take the time to read these passages that we're going to hear on trumpets and on atonement and at the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's important that we sit back and visualize what it's going to be like to be there. What it might be like for us to, to be in those places living the way that's projected in Scripture. And then about the same time I was listening to some of those classes, <clears throat> my wife played a TED Talk on our summer trip, and it was a psychologist talking about something that I'll mention to you here in just a moment. And it sounded very familiar with things that we know and do already and lined up similarly to what Mr. Meeker had been encouraging also in those classes. It's a special skill that the psychology world calls prospection. Prospection. So let me read a little blurb about prospection. <clears throat> In psychology, prospection is the generation and evaluation of mental representations of possible futures. Or a little more simply, the ability to imagine possible future scenarios. The term therefore captures a wide array of future-oriented psychological phenomenon. So if that scrambles your thoughts, let's just look at a couple of the phenomenon that they're talking about. One of them they call episodic foresight. This is the capacity to imagine a personal future scenario and then shape current action accordingly. I found that one interesting. If you want to, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9. We'll do a little sidebar here and then come back to the list. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 9, we'll start in verse 26. First Corinthians 9 and verse 26. I'm sorry, let's start in verse 24. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others I myself should be disqualified. Sounds a lot like episodic foresight. Capacity to imagine a personal future scenario and then shape action accordingly. And that is what we've been talking about. There's another aspect to prospection. The feelings evoked during episodic foresight 
enable people to infer how they would really feel if the event were to happen in reality. This thereby enables people to anticipate whether future events are desirable or undesirable. And then one last little piece. piece. Simulating the future enables people to create intentions for future actions. Now, the psychological world uses this to help people look ahead and say, you can do something today, change your behavior today, and you can see yourself different in the future than what you're struggling with today. But doesn't this all sound familiar this time of year? Prospection is something that God gives us the privilege to do with some insight. And he's given us an incredible gift with the upcoming Holy Days to point our minds to a tremendously positive future, one that will have the best of relationships. It's a vision that keeps us from perishing. It's a vision that, if we keep it alive, can sustain us to endure to the end. When we're struggling, when we have trials, when we're beat down, when we're concerned about all of the things that are swirling around us, it's what can tip the balance. Strengthening our faith and our relationship with God now, just like those who have gone before us, are, are things that are listed in Hebrews that we've looked at before. I'd like to turn to Romans 8 in conclusion, where Paul makes an extraordinary statement in context of what we've been discussing so far. We've talked about faith. We've talked about faith has a very strong relationship element. We've talked about God's faithfulness and our need to be faithful and our faithfulness and our obedience to Him. Romans 8 and verse 14. For as many are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And then quite an impactful statement here in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That is some statement. You know, these few verses that I just read to you in Romans 8 summarize many of the important pieces that we've been talking about today. There are promises that God's given us. He's perfectly able to deliver them. And we must believe that and have faith in that and hold on to that. He has given us His Spirit. He's adopted us as His children, joint heirs with Christ, and will provide a glorious future which will have no end. That's key to our perspective, our looking forward and what it might be like and thinking about those, as Mr. Meeker pointed out. We will suffer, 
Christ also suffered, but he did so as our family member, as our brother, and he set an example for us. We must be led by the Spirit, as verse 14 said. We must be obedient, just as Christ modeled for us, and he too was obedient to his Father. And with all of this in hand, all of these important features, all of these important pieces, we can see that there is no comparison that can bring us to throw away a relationship with God. No compromise to our obedience. And we will never let the balance tip and claim unfair or this is too great a burden. At the core, now and on into in eternity, is a closer relationship with God. You have to ask, will faith be a factor in the kingdom of God? All of the things that faith talks about looking forward to will be in hand. But we, what will remain is that relationship, a very close relationship with God, with Christ, and with the other saints. So as we step into the fall festivals this year, let's go into the fall festivals with faith, faithfulness, and building a very close relationship with God our Father.